Uh, last week we studied Stonewall Jackson. The week before that we studied Jonathan Edwards. And today we're going to look at Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah Edwards. So that's, that's our task today. Let's, let's, let's begin with prayer and then I'll go work on the sound again. Father, thank you for uh, your Lord's Day. Thank you that we have a day to worship you, to rest in you, Father, to uh, glorify and honor you. Pray that we would, uh, that our minds would dwell on things above and not the things of the earth, that you would uh, bless us as we uh, do these history lessons. May we uh, find good and godly examples. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One second, I'll be right back. Something's ringing, I'm not sure what it is. Okay, so Sarah Edwards was the daughter. Well, let me say this. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And Jonathan found a good wife and found favor from the Lord uh, through that means. And you'll see that as we go along. Sarah Edwards was born in 1710. She died in 1758 at 48 years old. Her parents were James and Mary Pierpont. And James, and James Pierpont, her father, was a pastor of one of the tall steeple churches in New Haven. So he would have been well-known, he would have been well-connected, and, and that would have put Sarah sort of in the middle of society in, in New Haven at the time. Uh, she was also the granddaughter, it's... At one point I read granddaughter, another place I read great-granddaughter of the Puritan Thomas Hooker, um, also a name you may know if you've looked back in the Puritan, Puritans in America. So James Pierpont, minister of First Church of New Haven, Connecticut, he was involved in the founding of what is now Yale, uh, where Jonathan trained and was later, later where her husband would, for a short time, as we remember when we looked at Jonathan, would serve as the president of Yale. He was there for three months before he died. Sarah and Jonathan met in 1723. So you, you can do the math. She was born in 1710. She was a 13-year-old girl. And Jonathan was 20. She was, in many ways, his antithesis. He was a nerd, he was awkward, he was shy, he did not like small talk, uh, he was distant and aloof, she was the opposite, she was a uh, great conversationalist, she put people at ease, she could enter into a conversation and, and carry on, I don't understand people like that. Um, she was good in society. She was godly. She was also, uh, contrary to Edward, she was beautiful. <laughs> and, 
And so she was a catch, as they would say. And Jonathan had no chance. Um, and yet, the Lord worked things out. When they first met, he was, he was very awkward. He was scared of her. He just sort of shut down. Yeah, he was 20, she was 13, and he still was just like, he shut down. In the front of his Greek grammar book at about this time, which tells you something, well, Jonathan Edwards is notorious for using scraps of paper. I mean, it was probably a common practice at the time because paper was a commodity that was hard to come by, but he would use any scrap of paper he had. He would write books on scraps of paper. And so Yale University now is, is like cataloging all those scraps of paper. And you can join their team to, to uh, help them translate his scribble and whatnot. And so um, just stacks and stacks of paper. And he wrote this in his Greek grammar book. This is about Sarah. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him that she expects after a while to be received up where he is and to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the riches of its, riches, richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections is most just and conscientious in all her actions, and you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those seasons in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly, and she seems to be always of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. So it, that sort of language seems um, excessively romanticized to us. Um, if you've read Jonathan Edwards' sermons, if you've read uh, letters of the time period, this was not extraordinary sort of language. This is the way that um, they thought. They had not yet been perverted by memes, right? So they could write in long sentences and have deep thoughts. Whereas we, we um, cannot. And so that's before they were married. That's after, shortly after they met. He just scribbled this note at the beginning of his grammar book, his Greek grammar book. No doubt when he was supposed to be studying Greek, he was thinking about Sarah, um, which shows a side of Jonathan Edwards perhaps that we're not expecting. 
Um, much of what he wrote in that initial snapshot of Sarah turns out to be very true over the course of their lives together. Certainly that she was able to bear up under affliction. Um, she was able to do that without any sort of bitterness, all the while praising God through all the things that she suffered. Um, they were engaged in 1725, so that would have made Sarah 15 or 16 and Jonathan 22. Um, he, Jonathan, again, would um, write in his journal during their engagement the following. And again, it shows a side of Jonathan Edwards. We think of him as a disembodied brain, or perhaps I do. Um, he, he wrote this during their engagement. He said, when I am violently beset with temptation or cannot rid myself of evil thoughts, I, I um, propound to do some, some in arithmetic or geometry or some other study which necessarily engages all my thought and unavoidably keeps them from wandering. So there he is um, making a resolution to uh, when he's tempted to start doing math in his brain. So what do you think? Helpful? Um, yeah, but when you do too much math, you got to do something else. Yeah, yeah, your mind, yeah, that's true. You can go down the rabbit hole. They were married, Jonathan and Sarah were, Sarah were married in 1727. Again, Sarah is 17, year old, 17 years old, Jonathan is 24. And it is shortly, um, shortly after that that Jonathan began working at the church in Northampton uh, that same year. So he gets married, he goes off to Northampton to begin uh, working alongside his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, uh, one source I read, and who knows if this is true, I've never come across this, but one source I read said this about a, a strange custom of the time. Custom commanded that a bride on her first Sunday in church wear her wedding dress and turn slowly so everyone could have a good look at it. Brides also had the privilege of choosing the text for the first Sunday after their wedding. Now, I can imagine the, the former, but not the latter, right? No way is a pastor going to give up the choosing of the text. Um, but uh, apparently they did this, right? And, and um, uh, I can't imagine either Sarah or Jonathan being happy about it, but uh, that was the custom of the time, wear the wedding dress to the first Sunday and turn about in it so that people could see and then pick the sermon text. Presbyterians would never fall for that. This is a congregationalist, you know, problem of the time. Um, Marsden, in his great biography of Jonathan Edwards, I very much recommend this big tome. It won a bunch of awards. And I had read, there's another Jonathan Edwards biography by Ian Murray, which again is good. Um, different approach to Jonathan Edwards. But um, if you want to read about Jonathan Edwards, I would pick up this one first and then maybe the Ian Murray after that. And uh, he says, um, Marsden in his bio of Jonathan remarks that the marriage revived Jonathan. 
He had been melancholy. He had been depressed and was not sure what he was supposed to be doing did, and, and really went through a season where he just felt distant from God. And uh, Marsden writes, by fall 1727, so that's about three months after the wedding, Jonathan had dramatically recovered his spiritual bearings, specifically his ability to find the spiritual intensity he had lost for three years. So his, his happiness in marriage and with his wife revived his spirits. The Edwards had 11 children all of whom survived infancy and lived to adulthood, which is remarkable for the time. Um, these are the names of the children. Sarah, Jerusha, Esther, Mary, Lucy, Timothy, Susanna, Eunice, Jonathan, Elizabeth, and Pierpont. So amazing that all those children lived to adulthood they were very conscientious about raising their, about the education of their children. It was, it was typical for the males of the time to receive the, the bulk of the education and the girls less education. That was not the case in the home of Sarah and Jonathan. They, um, Sarah did the bulk of the teaching, of course, because Jonathan spent anywhere from 10 to 13 hours in his study writing sermons, writing books, and um, stuff like that. So uh, preparing for, for uh, sermons and uh, doing the work of, of, of ministry. So uh, Sarah did the bulk of the teaching, but Jonathan spent an hour each day with them late afternoon in education. So he would come in, he would teach certain topics to the children for an hour, then they would have an hour of, of conversation, hanging out in the living room. Then they would eat dinner together. And then I, I assume after dinner, Jonathan would go back to his study and uh, do some more work. And uh, Jonathan also led the family in morning worship. He woke them up before sunrise, read a chapter of scripture, and they prayed together. So up early in the morning before the sun had come out, certainly in the winter. And they would do evening devotions together every day. And so otherwise, he's in his study. Sarah and Jonathan prayed together daily. They would, um, I'm not, I, I can't recall when they did that. Um, probably evenings, probably at the, the end of the day. And they would pray together. They continually had people in their home, even with 11 children. And probably not a spacious home, but they continually had people in their home. Visiting pastors, student pastors, men who were apprenticing for the ministry would stay with them for six months, a year. Um, and uh, traveling pastors, they, they were continually entertaining people in their home. George Whitfield was one of those guests that stayed at the Edwards home, and he would remark he, he said, a sweeter couple I have not yet seen. So he just, he, they, they were well suited to one another and, uh, and he loved the sweetness of their relationship. Of Sarah, he said, this is Whitfield, she was a woman adorned with a meek and quiet spirit, 
talked feelingly and solidly of the things of God, and seemed to be such a helpmate for her husband that she caused me to renew those prayers, which for many months I have put up to God, that he would be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. So he sees her and sees how they relate, and he's, he had set aside those prayers, you know, God's not going to answer this, God's not going to provide a wife. And then he, he renewed his prayers that God would send him a wife. Jennifer um, Adams, in the edition of, there's a, an edition of, of what's called Sarah, Sarah Edwards' narrative. And this narrative is, is a narrative of her spiritual life, her, her awakening in the Lord. Um, Jonathan, later after Sarah wrote it, did his own version sort of in the third person, and that's the one that got published first. And then Sarah's own account was, was found, and that was published as well. It would be interesting to do it, uh, to compare and contrast um, what's said there. But Jennifer Adams, in, in the intro to this um, edition of her narrative, said this, Sarah viewed her role of helpmate as her spiritual ministry to the Lord. She wisely understood that in doing all she could to minister to her husband by keeping their home pleasant and productive, she was freeing him to do what God had called him to do, pray, study, write, and preach. She recognized that she would rightly share in the spiritual rewards he would later receive. She encapsulated the definition of being a completer to a contender for the faith. A completer to a contender of the faith. In the wholehearted embrace of her call and the sacrifices that came with it. And so I think that's an apt description of Sarah. Remember that Sarah was much more uh, gifted with relating to people. She would have been the better pastor, right? She would have been the better speaker. She was able to small talk, you know, all of those things. And yet that's not the order that God has, has called for. And yet for her to come to the point where she saw her role as helpmate to be um, her entering into whatever rewards her husband would receive for his work is, um, is wonderful faith and good order and godliness. She diminished so that her husband um, could increase. And of course, Jonathan's influence is, um, is incredibly uh, pervasive. Now here's one point I want to emphasize. When her husband was embroiled in conflict, which he was, he, he, went, uh, he was in a number of conflicts, certainly in Northampton and the church there, she would undoubtedly have to bear her own cross. Right? When, when a pastor is in conflict, the pastor's wife bears a, um, a very difficult sort of weight. Um, that is the difficult life of a pastor's wife. She, the, the pastor's wife, and Sarah in particular, was loyal to her husband and loyal to the Lord, and when conflict comes to her husband, she has to battle against her, her you know, tenacious emotions and any bitterness that could develop toward the Lord 
and his providence, right? So when, when her husband's under attack, um, she, she bears the brunt of it. Now, one of Sarah Edwards' sins was this. She remarked on it. Jonathan remarked on it was a desire for the approval of men, which is a tough one for um, a, a pastor who's in controversy. Right? That's going to tear her up. And that was one of her besetting sins, was this approval, desire for the approval of men. Um, she, I mean, simultaneously, she's, she was also very jealous for her husband. Right? So those two things can be very much at odds with one another. Right? She's very, um, very jealous for her husband and wants to promote him and see that he, uh, he does well. And nonetheless, she's still seeking the approval of men. Now, I want to read a chunk from Marsden. And I, I don't know how much I read. I wish I could read the whole book to you. This one section is very helpful in getting to know Sarah Edwards. It says, it says this. It was here that Jonathan recorded that Sarah, in lower degrees of grace, had always been prone to many ups and downs and a vapory habit of body and often subject to melancholy and at times almost overborne by it. So she got depressed. She got depressed. Her ascent to a higher level of grace and the bodily effects of it had begun during the Northampton awakening, awakening in 1735, but it reached a much higher degree and greater frequency in 1739 when there was no awakening. This point was important to Jonathan's argument because he could underscore that these agitations arose from no distemper catched from Mr. Whitfield or Mr. Tennant. In other words, before those guys were on the scene, the spirit was working. Right? So it wasn't because these famous guys were coming through. The Spirit had been working. Since the onset of these more wonderful and more frequent experiences in 1739, Sarah's depression had been overcome and crushed by the power of faith and trust in God and resignation to Him. The person has remained in a constant, uninterrupted rest and humble joy in God and assurance of His favor without one hour's melancholy or darkness. This was all the more remarkable because, quote, vapors have, been great, have had great effects on the body, such as they used to have before, but the soul has been always out of their reach. So he's talking about she used to get depressed. She went through the spiritual awakening. She, she crushed that depression by God's gift. At the core of Sarah's new spiritual strength was her attitude of near total submission to God. Jonathan made a point of mentioning that even in times of the brightest light and highest flights of joy and love, she had no belief of being now perfected free from sin, as opposed to what Wesley was teaching at this time. Thinking along this line, Jonathan added an oblique defense of Sarah's belief in dressing well, noting that the person had a particular dislike of placing religion much in dress and spending much zeal about those things that in themselves are matters of indifference and often seemed outward displays of humility. She also did not believe that the pious needed to affect a demure and melancholy countenance. Yet while she avoided Methodist doctrines and forms, 
Her piety was just as intense, seeking to be so absorbed in the wonders of God's sovereign love that she could submit to God every care of the world. The greater the submission, the greater the transport of being filled with spiritual joys. Sarah's original version of the narrative, her narrative of her spiritual life, focused intensely on this theme of submission. For years, she had been working hard to be weaned from the world. A perpetual mother to be weaned was one of Sarah's favorite terms. It meant to submit entirely to God's will so that she could give up her cares for all things here below. Yet two things remain that she could not suffer with uh, tranquilly. First was the ill treatment of the town. She couldn't bear with the fact that the, tr- the town treated her husband and herself so poorly. And then, um, being the minister's wife, she was subject to the carping criticisms of the town, which she could not bear. She felt that she was va- valued um, she felt that she was valued too highly. My own good name and fair reputation among men, and especially the esteem and the just treatment of the people of this town. The second and even more vexing failing was her inability to stand any ill will of my husband, unquote. She could not stand any ill will of my husband. Or to put it positively, she valued too highly the esteem and kind treatment of her husband. The small incident with Jonathan had triggered the crisis. Jonathan had said that, now listen to this. There's this little incident in the, the life of Jonathan and Sarah. Jonathan criticized his wife for being too open in conversation with another minister. And it really hurt Sarah. She was really hurt. Small incident with Jonathan had triggered the crisis. Jonathan had said that he thought... I had failed in some measure to, in a point of prudence, in some conversation I had with Mr. Williams of Hadley. Chester Williams, pastor at the nearby Hadley, was a distant cousin. Though Chester was a friend of the revival and even did some preaching while Edwards was absent, Jonathan may have been especially sensitive to anything that his colleague might have taken as a slight. In any case, Sarah was mortified by his criticism and took her hurt and resentment as evidence of her lack of sufficient sanctification. Praise the Lord. The next day, Wednesday, January 20th, still harboring her concerns about her inability to find sufficient rest in God, she gathered with the family and guests around 10 in the morning for prayers, The Reverend Peter Reynolds, pastor at Enfield, offered a prayer during which Sarah found herself wishing he would address God as Father. She greatly desired to be able, quote, without the least misgivings of heart, call God my Father, unquote. Returning to be alone to contemplate this, she was overcome with ecstasy. God the Father, quote, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ seemed as distinct persons both manifesting their inconceivable loveliness and mildness and gentleness and their great immutable love to me, unquote. The peace that followed was altogether inexpressible. At the same time, I felt compassion and love for all mankind and a deep abasement of soul under a sense of my own unworthiness. In the fashion of New England piety, 
she saw her sense of her own worthlessness as a sign that God was acting in her life. Right? That's what it looks like when God acts in our lives. It is absolutely and astonishingly humbling. Right? For the next days, even as Sarah continued, every act of duty, her sensibilities were dominated by these sublime ecstasies. The following Monday evening, after five and a half days, she faced a new challenge to her abilities to submit, to, submit all her cares to God. She heard that Samuel Buell was coming to town to preach. Uh-oh. Right? Another preacher's coming to town. She's jealous for her husband and his reputation. The revival's going on, and she's concerned that, that some other pastors are going to bear more fruit than her own husband. Right? The 25-year-old Buell had just graduated from Yale. He had originally intended to study with Edwards, but he had proved such an effective preacher of revival that he had turned to being a licensed itinerant. When Sarah heard of his coming, she wished him great success in Northampton, yet she was also chagrined to realize that in her heart of hearts she would be jealous if the young man sparked a new revival greater than what her husband had recently been able to foster. In the 1734-35 revival, Jonathan's success had outshone all counterparts. Sarah's loyalty to Jonathan was deep. She also felt insecure toward the town. She knew Jonathan had critics who would be glad to undercut his authority as supreme revivalist. Oh, man, it's, this is so good. <clears throat> When Buell began his preaching Wednesday afternoon, Sarah not only overcame her jealousy, but she became one of the chief instruments of his spectacular success. After the service, seeing that several people were spiritually moved, Sarah was so overcome by a vision of heaven that she lost her bodily strength. She and others stayed in the meeting house for three hours well, until well after dark, as she felt led, quote, to converse with those who were near me in a very earnest manner, unquote. Likely, she was exhorting men as well as women in this group in such cases of witnessing in an extraordinary experience. Jonathan allowed exceptions to the rule that women should not teach men. When she returned home, Buell and six other guests were there conversing on divine things. Once again, she was overcome, alternately losing bodily strength and feeling impelled to leap from her chair and praising God in words of hymns. The next morning, in a similar setting, she was even more overcome, first falling down in a swoon and later unconsciously leaping from her chair when especially moved by the words of some of the melting hymns of Isaac Watts, which Buell was reading. Buell was a great proponent of the new hymnody, using hymns not only in private meetings, as Edwards had, but also introducing them for the first time into the regular Northampton church. Even in ordinary times, Sarah was often singing. On this Thursday morning, Sarah felt herself entirely swallowed up in God and was totally overcome with a ravishing sense of the unspeakable joys of the upper world. From 12 to 4 in the afternoon, she lay in bed, conversing on these things to the pious women who attended her. That night was the sweetest night I ever had in my life, she said as she spent the whole night in a heavenly... Um, a heavenly place as though to float or swim in these bright, sweet beams of the love of Christ. Each minute seemed part of eternity, worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my whole life. Um, 
Oh man, there's so much good stuff that comes up. That gives you a good picture, a realistic picture of a pastor's wife, right? All of these competing pressures. And yet what's extraordinary about Sarah is she, she was able to overcome them by faith in the Lord and put to death um, her flesh and, and live for God. And so she, now, it, it, is, it is common to bash the piety that we read about with Edwards and uh, with Jonathan Edwards, with uh, others during this time. But remember that Sarah Edwards was married to Jonathan Edwards, who wrote about what true revival and true piety really was. And... And so he was aware of the abuses of spirituality during that time more than anybody else, right? So when we read of Sarah Edwards, we have someone who's very close to the man who was very concerned about the abuses of, of spirituality at the time. And so I, so I take that to be that what, what she... Um, and they didn't have a distant relationship, right? They, they were constantly with one another. So this was not just a... Um, his wife had her spiritual life, and he had his, and he let her get away with these crazy things that she, you know, she's, you know, she's a little, she's a little spicy in her, uh, her spirituality. No, I think he was well aware of these things. He actually rewrote her narrative in which all of these things are included. And this shows what a relationship with the Lord can be like. I think our whole generation of the church operates under a spiritual malaise, a blindness, a deadness, right? And so we kind of we laugh at people who say they, they had a heavenly experience and felt like they were in heaven for a night. Um, I've had experiences like that. During, when I, was, when I was first converted, you know, it was joy like I had never felt before. Um, there have been times like that. Just I'm writing a sermon and the Spirit overcomes me. And before I know it, I'm crying for three hours thinking about my sins and thinking about the glory of the grace of God. Right? The sweet times of spiritual refreshing. They're trying because they're difficult, but um, this should be normal spirituality. If we believe in the Holy Spirit, this should be normal spirituality. This should be common experience by those who God says, if you, if you follow me, I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth, right? Um, but we, we choose, like um, C.S. Lewis said, to play with the mud pies and not give our attention to the Lord. Um, <clears throat> and so there's, there's much more. Um, there's another trial I'll mention briefly. David Brainerd came to live with them. David Brainerd, I mentioned last time, he was a student at Yale. He kind of got kicked out of Yale because they couldn't, they, they didn't know what to do with him. And um, missionary, he came and stayed with the Edwards, and he stayed with the Edwards when he got sick, and he was sick with tuberculosis. And so, extremely contagious, deadly, you know. So he gets there, and, and one, they were willing to take him into their home, which shows great faith. And then two, Jerusha, their daughter, basically fell in love with, with David Brainerd. 
young, young lady, but she then continued, they, they had, um, you can read about their relationship, but um, she determined that she was going to be the, the nursemaid to David Brainerd. David Brainerd dies after about eight months, and then Jerusha dies about three, four weeks later, um, having gotten tuberculosis from the man she cared for. And so um, Edwards would write to a friend, herein we have a great loss, but the remembrance of the remarkable appearances of piety in her from her childhood and life, and also at her death, are very comforting to us and give us great reason to mingle thanksgiving with our mourning. I desire your prayers, dear sire, that God would make up our great loss in himself. So that's what he would write about Jerusha. One final trial I want to mention, and that's her husband's death. So Jonathan had taken over the presidency of Yale. He made his way to New Haven. She, Sarah and the kids are still back in Stockbridge. So he's made his way up to the big city. And he took over from Aaron Burr, not the, not the future vice president, I don't think. No, he died, so that's, he, he dies as the president of Yale. Aaron Burr, he, who died suddenly, Aaron was married to Jonathan and Sarah's third-born daughter, Esther. So one of their daughters was married to Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr is the president of Yale. He dies and Esther, um, Esther has two small children. Right? Jonathan makes his way to New Haven where he's taking over the presidency. And um, <clears throat> he, he received his inoculation for, for smallpox and died after, uh, after serving for three months. He died from that inoculation. He died of smallpox. On his deathbed, he mentioned his wife. Jonathan mentioned his wife. Um, these words are attributed uh, as the, the last things he said and, and, um, and his focus is his wife at that point, which shows you the sweetness of their, their relationship. It seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, we could pick it apart theologically, right? I mean, there is no marriage in heaven. Um, we become like the angels, Jesus says. And yet, his marriage was so satisfying to him that he can't imagine what life would be like, you know, beyond the here and now. And so he expresses this, um, this cry of his heart. Well, Sarah responded with these words in a letter to her daughter. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. 
So that's what, that's what she said in, uh, to her daughters in a letter. Remember, she's still, she's still back in Stockbridge. Her husband has died. It takes a three-week, it's three weeks to get in a, in a carriage that far. You can't just up and go. I mean, uh, you just, you can't. Sixteen days after Jonathan's death, their daughter Esther, who was married to Aaron Burr, died. Sixteen days after her husband's death. She leaves behind two orphan children. And this is what, um, what we learn. Upon hearing the news, Sarah packed her bags, traveled by stagecoach to New Jersey, a trip that would take at least three weeks. Upon arriving, she received Esther's orphan children to take back with her to Stockbridge. After a week of traveling, she stayed at an inn in Philadelphia. And at the age of 49, while grieving the sudden death of her husband and daughter, plus caring for two small children on a treacherous journey, she fell ill, having contracted a severe case of dysentery. Two witnesses noted that, that she did not speak much in her sickness because she was afflicted with violent pain. So that's the end. That's the end of Sarah Edwards. That's where the Lord took her. Right? Her husband dies. Her daughter dies. Her daughter dies first. Her husband dies. Daughter dies. She picks up the grandchildren to take back to Stockbridge, and she dies on the journey back. And no doubt she made her appearance before the Lord and saw the one that she loved more than any of the people she loved on this earth. And she was satisfied, right? She was satisfied being in the presence of her Savior. So this is, this again, there, there are so many other aspects to this that I wish we, we could cover, <clears throat> but this is the, <clears throat> this is what I took away from studying Sarah Edwards. Are there any questions or comments at this point? Thoughts? Yeah. She did write, and some of the things that, that Marsden quoted are letters from her, and so yeah, there's, there's a, I don't know how much, but <clears throat> we do have some of her letters. Yeah. Um, in that book, it's wonderful to read her daughter's letters. Yes. Esther's letters, especially when her husband dies, she's corresponding with her mom, and they're just wonderfully mature. They're, they're, it's clear they're trying to come to grips with God's providence, and they're doing it in a respectful way. They fear God, they love God, and they're not about to accuse God. They just, they don't go there. It's wonderful faith. Yeah. What happened to those two children? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question, Mary. Who became? Oh, so one of those children, yeah. That's right. That's right. That would have been Aaron Burr Jr. Yeah, there you go. They went on to great things. Depending on yeah, what you think about the shooting. <laughs> Oh, man.
Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't put that together. Thank you. Read, I mean, if you haven't taken anything else from these classes, read biographies, right? Read biographies. They're so helpful. And um, so helpful to see. I mean, there are things that, that men and women struggled with in previous ages that have been taken off our plates. There are things we struggle with that they couldn't even have imagined dealing with, um, right? The, uh, I mean, we've largely been going back to the 17th, 18th century, and life was much more difficult. Life was staying alive in, in many respects. You, you think of Jonathan, Sarah Edwards, keeping that home was just a mammoth task, especially as they were so hospitable right? But he, she's caring for 11 children and caring for her husband and making sure that he has his 10 to 13 hours to, um, to work. And it, it, that's just a massive, very few women can handle such glorious and hard work like that today, right? Um, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge to us. Any other last thoughts? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your servants in previous ages. Thank you for the things that got recorded so that we could study them and think about ourselves and about your providence, your goodness. Thank you for... Uh, for the way that the Apostle Paul and Timothy and, and the, the Israelites are all examples to us. But, Father, there are further examples in our history. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us an experience of you and your Holy Spirit and of your Son that lifts us above this world. And Father, that that experience of knowing your love would make us useful in this world. Uh, Father, as we live uh, for the life to come and not for uh, this life now. Father, I pray as we come into worship you that we would sing with faith, that we would uh, receive your word with faith, that we would pray with faith. Father, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.